Well, welcome everyone. It's far too nice a day to be, uh, be in here attending a lecture. Uh, your dedication is well noted. Uh, I'm going to talk with you about uh, uh, school safety and, and violence prevention. Uh, and then my colleague Catherine Bradshaw will pick up and talk specifically about, uh, uh, about bullying. Um, main points I want to cover in the next uh, 25 or 30 minutes are first of all that, uh, that schools are actually much safer than we're led to believe by news reports and high profile events. Uh, but unfortunately the fear of school violence generated by those events is, uh, is very costly and, and often generates uh, negative effects that actually make our schools less safe rather than more safe uh, because we don't spend enough emphasis on prevention. So I'll talk a little bit about the notion of three tiers of prevention. Uh, and then I will talk about threat assessment as an example of a prevention approach uh, which, uh, which we've successfully implemented in Virginia schools, and I'll share with you some, uh, some data from research that we're doing uh, in Virginia schools. All right, so school shootings, of course, generate a lot of fear and concern, understandably. The, the, the Sandy Hook shooting being uh, one of the most frightening and troubling shootings. Uh, but these events uh, are so traumatic and so riveting that they uh, they skew our perceptions of the safety of schools in general. Uh, and of course the news media and, and advocacy groups capitalize on this fear by uh, emphasizing, for example, every year, every December, there's a series of news reports on how many school shootings we've had since Sandy Hook. And, and the most recent one said that there have been 224 school shootings uh, since Sandy Hook. And that certainly is too many shootings. We'd like to have zero shootings. But uh, to put this in perspective, we need to think, well, how many shootings have we had generally in the United States since, since 2013? Uh, and in fact, if we look at CDC statistics, we know that there are about 32,000 firearm deaths in the United States uh, uh, every year. Suicides, homicides, and accidental shootings. There's about 84,000 firearms injuries every year. Uh, so this doesn't include shootings where no one is, is injured or, or it's not recorded. But even this low estimate gives us 116,000 shootings every year in the United States, which uh, you can divide that out by 365, and there's over 300 shootings every day in the United States. So if there's over 300 shootings every day, then maybe 224 over a period of three years is, is not quite as big a number as it seems, because during that same time period, there were a half a million shootings in the United States. So what I'd like to suggest to you is that even though that number of school shootings is frighteningly large and we'd like it to be zero, what it really indicates to us is that schools are one of the safest places for kids to be. In fact, uh, if we look at uh, shootings by or homicides of young people, homicides of young people, there are 20 up to 30 per year in schools. And there are 1,500, 1,600, 1,900 uh, every year outside of schools. And so uh, schools are actually quite a safe place. One of, uh, uh, another way to look at this is that we have about 125,000 public school or 25,000 total schools in the United States. We have about 21 deaths of students at school every year. Too many, but only 21. We divide that by 125,000. And the average school will have a student killed at school every 6,000 years. 
every 6,000 years. And so uh, uh, if you put that in perspective, uh, you realize that our concern about school violence is, uh, or violence in schools is, is very heavy. Um, one of my graduate students and I uh, obtained data from the FBI on homicides across the United States, actually not the entire United States, but, but uh, 37 states. Uh, we collected data on 18,000 homicides across the United States. And, uh, uh, and we use this data because it identifies where the homicides took place. And uh, guess what? The majority of homicides all across the United States, year in and year out, occur in people's homes, in residences. Second on the list are streets and parking lots and garages. And, uh, and you'll see restaurants had 533 homicides during this time period. Schools, on the other hand, and that includes colleges, had only 49 homicides. So one way to, to look at this is that restaurants actually have 10 times more shootings than schools. 10 times more homicides, 10 times more shootings of all types than, than schools. So why haven't we heard about restaurant violence? Why isn't there a reunion seminar on restaurant violence uh, rather than school violence? And, uh, and, and why doesn't the NRA recommend that we arm our cooks and wait persons rather than our teachers? Okay? We've created this phenomenon of called school violence and school shootings like it's some huge monster problem unlike other problems that we have uh, when in fact we have shootings all across our country uh, and we need to address the larger problem rather than pick on the schools and burden the schools with the idea of uh, dealing with these events. If we look beyond shootings, just at violent crime and particularly serious violent crime, what we see is that the serious violent crime rate in US schools, that's robbery, rape, and aggravated assault, actually has declined tremendously in our schools. And that parallels a larger decline in juvenile violent crime uh, over the same time period. So our schools are much safer than than we realize. In fact, uh, uh, gosh, I'm bombarding you with data today, aren't you? Should be a, should be a rule against that in the summertime to... Uh, <laughs> it's a research talk. Yeah. Be data. Well, I guess so. Thank you, very, thank you, Captain. So At any rate... the researcher. <laughs> yes. If you, uh, if you look at the frequency at which schools have violent crime, uh, in fact, 58% of our schools uh, in one year, reported a physical attack or a fight, uh, threat of physical attack, threat with a weapon, robbery. All of these things occur in a certain percentage of our schools every year. Homicides, uh, I can't even figure out how small that number is, uh, uh, but uh, very low rate of, of homicides. Uh, what we deal with and what educators deal with on a daily basis, though, are arguments and bullying that occur on a daily basis in our school. So really our attention and our focus needs to be much more on these lower level, less dramatic, but still very important events, which is why Catherine is gonna be here to talk with you about uh, uh, bullying in just a few minutes. Uh, fights perhaps uh, weekly in schools, severe violence uh, quite rarely. But the consequence of this perception of schools as dangerous places First of all, there's budgetary consequences. This has been a boom for the school safety industry, which we didn't even have a school safety industry 20 years ago, but now it's a multi-billion dollar business 
of marketing to schools, security measures, uh, uh, bulletproof building entrances. Uh, uh, you, you can't find a school system that isn't contemplating, planning, or just completed rebuilding the entrance to their school to make it more secure. Uh, we see metal detectors and x-ray screening in, in many schools, particularly urban schools. Uh, and of course, we are hiring security officers and police officers. Uh, and certainly police officers can play a very positive, important role in schools. Uh, but in terms of preventing shootings, uh, as I said, that's a very infrequent, unlikely event and, and not a good use of their resources. Uh, after the Sandy Hook shooting, there was a call to put police officers in every elementary school. Here in Virginia, people wanted officers to be in their elementary schools. Here in Albemarle County, uh, they said, can we put an officer, they said to the chief of police, can we put an officer in every elementary school? And certainly emotionally, that seemed like a good idea. And our chief said, well, sure, we can do that. We've got 23 elementary schools in Albemarle County. We'll put an officer in every single one of them. The problem is, there will be no officers on the streets because 23 is our entire shift. We need to think about putting officers where they're most needed uh, and, uh, uh, and most likely to be effective. Uh, we also have this transformation in school culture where uh, we're practicing uh, uh, shooter drills, SWAT team drills, uh, safety drills of, of all types. Uh, all of this costs money. So all across the country, we see headlines, particularly after school shooting, of uh, millions of dollars that are being spent for uh, security measures. And literally what's happening is that schools are taking money and shifting it to security measures at the cost of mental health services, counseling, support services, prevention programs. Uh, here again in our local county, the school had to come up with money to fix the door locks so that the door locks could be secured against intruders. At the same time, in that same budget, they didn't have enough money for their bully prevention program, and so they had to cut it back. We've also seen changes in discipline policy because of the fear of school violence. Uh, we've seen the massive development of zero-tolerance policies that often lead to kids being suspended for, for really trivial misbehavior. Uh, here, in, uh, here in Maryland, a, uh, a child after the Sandy Hook shooting went pow-pow with his finger. Didn't do it maliciously, he did it playfully, but the teacher was quite distressed by that and he ended up being suspended from school. Uh, in Virginia, a boy uh, went pow-pow with his pencil. Uh, and under the school's zero tolerance policy, he was suspended for a firearms violation. Because under Virginia policy, a look-alike, a toy gun, is considered the same as a real gun and can receive the same consequences of, of long-term suspension or expulsion. And so, uh, uh, so he faced a long-term suspension for a pencil. So these are fear-based policies. They're overreactions. Uh, and what we know about suspension is that it is not an effective discipline policy. Uh, if suspension worked, as many people think it should, then it ought to deter people. That is, if you, if you know you're going to get suspended, you wouldn't misbehave. And if I suspend one student for misbehavior, it'll make the other students improve their behavior. That's the theory. It seems to make sense. But in fact, what we know from research looking at schools all over the country is that when schools use suspension, those students don't improve their behavior. 
they're actually more likely to get suspended again and again. And the other students in the school aren't deterred by the suspension. They, in fact, are more likely to misbehave. Because what happens when you suspend students is they fall behind in their classes. They feel frustrated. Uh, they feel rejected. They feel pushed out of school. And when they return to school, they continue to misbehave and get into more trouble. Schools that use suspension have higher dropout rates and higher juvenile court involvement uh, for those students. Even if you control, statistically, for their prior behavior, for the demographics, for the community factors that might drive uh, greater misbehavior in schools. So we talk about a school-to-prison pipeline, that, that suspension seems to be a policy that is fueling a pipeline of sending students into uh, the juvenile justice and prison system. So my response to all these concerns is that we need to focus much more uh, carefully and much more attentively on prevention. And by prevention, I mean to keep something from happening, not to respond to something that's already happened. But unfortunately, when we have shootings, terrible shootings like the, the shooting at, uh, at Virginia Tech, our mind is riveted on what do we do if there's a shooter here? What do we do? Do we go out the window? Do we barricade the door? How quickly can we get the police here? But none of those are prevention efforts. Uh, we developed a threat assessment process, which I'll be telling you a little bit about, but after the Virginia Tech shooting, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, testify at a congressional hearing about the use of programs to prevent shootings. And um, I recall one congressman thought that the hearing was a waste of time. He said, we can't prevent violence because we can't predict who is going to do one of these crazy madman shootings. And since we can't predict it, there's no way that we can prevent it. Now, that's a very simplistic uh, fallacy. Uh, and he, he, left the, he left the hearing before I could give a response to him, so I'm going to give you the response here. Um, but in fact, uh, prevention does not require prediction. We can, pre we can prevent things that are not predictable, that are uh, quite randomly uh, distributed. And let me give you some examples. How many of you have been in an automobile accident? Just about everybody has. Did you predict it? Well, of course not. You know, they, they, seem, uh, they seem random, they seem unpredictable. But we know that we can reduce the rate of automobile accidents with primary prevention, building good roads, having safe cars, having traffic regulations, a lot of things that we do in, the, in this country that actually reduce the rate of automobile accidents, even though we can't predict any one of them. Uh, we also know that we can do prevention at a secondary level, uh, a secondary level for individuals who have risk factors for some negative outcome. Now, I don't know which of these girls is going to get lung cancer. I can't predict that. Uh, but I can predict that they're at higher risk and that the odds are that one of them will uh, because of smoking. And so we can take this kind of secondary prevention approach and think about things that increase the risk of violence uh, and work on reducing the risk factors. And finally, we have individuals uh, who are in a need, immediate need of, of services. This is tertiary prevention. Prevention really where a problem has already surfaced or is in need of immediate attention. Uh, this is a young man who uh, became very distressed when, uh, when his girlfriend broke up with him and started dating his best friend. Gosh, that's never happened before, uh, but that was a really distressing thing to this young man. And uh, 
Uh, and one night on a chat, uh, in a chat room, he started, you know, uh, venting his feelings and came up with the idea that maybe he would just go to school and, and shoot that former best friend and, and then shoot himself uh, to really communicate and express his, his grief. Now, did he intend to do this? Was he actually going to do this? Uh, it was very alarming. We can't really say for sure. But what did happen was that uh, the girl who received this message contacted someone to school. The school contacted law enforcement. They went to the young man's house. They took him to the hospital for evaluation. And after that, after he was released from the hospital, uh, they developed a program, a counseling and intervention program to prevent something uh, terrible from happening. So this is tertiary prevention. So this is really a model that schools have adopted all across the country. Uh, Dr. Bradshaw is actually uh, uh, one of the leading experts on, on PBIS, uh, Positive Behavioral Interventions and Support, which takes this multi-tiered approach. Uh, it can be applied to a lot of different uh, needs uh, in our schools. Let me just say a little bit about threat assessment, why I got interested in threat assessment. This was uh, uh, back in the 90s, I evaluated a young boy who'd been uh, teased and bullied. And uh, uh, I won't go through all the different venues in which he was being teased and harassed, but uh, uh, it took a heavy toll on him. Uh, he had a family history of mental illness, which he wasn't aware of, even his parents weren't aware of. But he began to hear voices, uh, and he became, became very paranoid uh, and felt that there were... Uh, there were aliens who were after him, a man who was trying to control him, and voices that, that guided and directed his behavior. He began to hang out with a group of sort of counterculture kids in school who were uh, uh, rebellious and, and angry and felt mistreated at school and in a rivalrous situation with the preppy kids at school. And so he, uh, 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 when those kids talked about shooting up the school, uh, he took them quite literally. The voices in his head said, yes, you've got to do this. And uh, one day he came to school uh, with some guns, guns for the other kids as well as for himself, although the other kids didn't participate. Uh, and he carried out a terrible, uh, a terrible shooting. Um, uh, the shooting killed three students, wounded five others in, in, uh, at Heath High School in, in Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, he pled guilty, uh, is in prison serving a, uh, a life sentence at this time. Um, in evaluating this young man and, and spending time with his family and, and family members and, and friends and people who, who knew him, uh, I was struck by the contributing factors. Bullying certainly played a role in, his, in the shooting. Uh, his mental illness played a role. Uh, peer influences, the other kids who encouraged him and, and came up with this idea and reinforced his behavior. Uh, as well as his, his access to guns. All of these were contributing factors that had the school had a bullying prevention program, uh, mental health screening, uh, paid attention to the rivalry between uh, peer groups at schools, uh, they might have prevented this, uh, this shooting. But the most important factor uh, uh, overall to me was that no one had reported his threatening behavior. Uh, the other kids who knew he had, had stolen guns and had the guns ready, the kids who were warned. There were over a dozen kids who were told, don't be in the lobby Monday morning. Uh, it's going to be payback time for you. Oh, you're my friend. I don't want you to be hurt. 
none of these kids went to authorities uh, to, uh, to share these concerns. Uh, when I interviewed some of these kids, they told me that they didn't want to be snitches, they didn't want to be rats, they didn't want to be tattletales. And, and we've seen this again and again in school shootings across the country. That is, these are for the most part not carried out in private by kids who uh, have done this secretly. Uh, in most cases, other kids have been warned, uh, told about it in one way or another, uh, and either sought help or, or did not. And uh, so it's very important to teach kids the difference between snitching and, and seeking help. Uh, we've seen across the country that school shootings have been prevented because children did understand the difference between snitching and seeking help. Uh, I attended the FBI's conference and participated in their study of school shootings back in 1999 when they recommended that schools needed a threat assessment approach to, uh, to prevent violence. Uh, what is threat assessment? That was my question when I heard this. It's a term from law enforcement. doesn't sound like an education term. Uh, but in fact, it's a problem-solving approach to violence prevention. It's an approach that says, let's try to understand why this person has engaged in threatening behavior. Let's understand the problem that underlies their threatening behavior and try to assess and intervene uh, with those students. And so uh, we train teams in school to uh, assess the seriousness of a threat, to determine what protective action is needed, uh, what kind of problem stimulated the threat, and what can be done to resolve that problem. So it's a simple common sense approach. Uh, understanding that, that many threats, threatening statements that a student might make are, are not very serious. They might be jokes or figures of speech. They might be expressions of anger or an attempt to boast. Uh, they might be oriented toward causing a disruption or intimidating or frightening someone, which certainly are of concern. But what we're really looking for in a threat assessment are those small number of threats, the really tip of the iceberg, uh, that are warnings of impending violence. And uh, by taking a broad approach to uh, addressing threats, uh, we're able to, uh, to make those distinctions. We developed threat assessment guidelines, a manual for schools to use to evaluate threats. Uh, and uh, uh, this involves a decision tree that the team goes through as they gather information to look at the risk factors, look at the uh, circumstances and the context of the threatening behavior. And uh, over the last 15 years, we have been busy disseminating this model, training schools to use this model, uh, and we've also been conducting research to show its uh, effectiveness. Gosh, I'm just going to run through all nine of these studies and give you all the statistical results from them. Well, maybe not, but uh, uh, certainly if you want to contact me, we'll, we'll send you copies of any of these studies that you're, uh, that you're interested in. These involve field testing to show that it works, controlled studies where we compared schools using threat assessment with schools not using threat assessment. And, uh, uh, and uh, with this body of evidence, we were uh, recognized by the federal government, uh, by the National Registry of Evidence-Based Programs and Practices as an evidence-based approach. Well, after the Sandy Hook shooting, uh, Virginia took a very serious look at the safety of their schools. They established a commission, the governor's commission, to look at school safety and security. And one of the recommendations of this uh, committee was that all schools in Virginia ought to have threat assessment teams. And so that was passed into law. And over the past three years, every school uh, now in Virginia has a, 
uh, threat assessment team. We received a federal grant to evaluate and study the threat assessment process. And, uh, and in fact, I'll share with you some data uh, before, since you haven't heard enough data already, uh, from, uh, from our study of statewide implementation of threat assessment in Virginia. Uh, this is a sample of 785 schools that contributed 1,865 threat assessment cases. As you can see, there are kids at all grade levels, from pre-kindergarten to 12th grade, who make threats. But, but most threats, and, and any middle school teacher knows this, most of the discipline problems are in our, our middle grades, and, and the same is true for threats. Uh, the kids make all kinds of threats. Sometimes they're unspecified. I'm going to get you. I'm going to hurt you or I'm going to kill you, I'm going to use a weapon, I'm going to hit you, beat you up, uh, lots of different things that students might threaten. What we're concerned about is that schools not overreact to threats that aren't serious, or that they don't underreact to threats, to the small number of threats that really are serious. Uh, they threaten two-thirds of the time, students threaten other students. But we have threats against teachers, threats against the whole school, and so forth. Uh, let me just assure you that when we gathered data on these 1,800 threat cases, the vast majority of them were not attempted, 97.7%. Uh, a small percentage were attempted and averted. That is, a person was going to hit somebody, stab somebody, cause some kind of problem, uh, and they took steps to actually try to carry it out, and they were stopped. Uh, and in 1% of the cases, less than 1%, the threat was carried out. No one was seriously injured in any of these cases. The most serious injury was a, a kid was stabbed with a pencil. Uh, didn't get stitches, but it was, a, it was a pencil stab. So uh, what were the disciplinary consequences? What were the legal outcomes for these cases? Uh, kids were reprimanded. Uh, they were suspended from school in less than half of the, of the cases. Uh, and if you look down here at the bottom, uh, only 1% of the kids were arrested. Only 1% of the kids were, were expelled. So schools were making distinctions about the seriousness of the cases uh, and acting appropriately. Uh, we know that uh, most of these kids were able to return to school. 84% of the kids were able to come back to school. Uh, some of them were transferred to an alternative school or placed on homebound. Uh, but uh, for the most part, they came back to school. Uh, we were interested in the racial disparities, that any racial disparities that might occur. We know that there's a big problem with uh, minority students being suspended at much higher rates uh, than, than white students. Uh, but we found in cases involving a threat assessment, uh, there were no racial ethnic differences between white, black, and Hispanic students in suspension rates, in whether they were removed from school, in expulsion, arrest, or incarceration. There were no statistically significant uh, differences. Well, so uh, we're seeing that schools are making uh, good distinctions, uh, reliable distinctions among uh, students uh, who make threats of violence, uh, and they are uh, uh, allowing most of the, school, the students to return and continue in school without uh, racial disparities. Uh, but we also identified some needs and some concerns in the schools. They wanted more educational programs. They wanted ways to uh, improve their threat assessment analysis and, and intervention. And, uh, and so we've developed uh, some online educational programs so that schools, folks in the schools, know about threat assessment, know how it works, and are able to participate uh, in the process. 
Uh, I'm going to share with you just uh, briefly, I've got about three or four more minutes here, and um, I'm going to share with you a clip from an online program that we have. Uh, this is a program particularly for students, so that students are informed about the threat assessment process in their school, and this is just a clip from that to uh, give you a sense of what we're, uh, message we're communicating to our kids. Should be about two minutes. It worked so well before you all came here when we tried this out. Yeah, if it doesn't if it doesn't kick on here in a minute, it might be just sort of slow to respond. No. No, this is what we did before, and it it, it started right up. No, that's not going to do it. All right, so uh, let's see. I'm not sure it's on the desktop that we can play it directly. We could try that if we had it. I don't see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I don't see the video file. So do you have access to the file, the video file? We need you to play it directly because it's, it's not playing okay. in here. Yeah. Is, it, is the flash drive showing? Mm -hmm. yeah. If you go to the, uh, the file manager in the bottom left there. All right. All right. I'll let you do that. Oh, yeah. The file needed to be up. You've got to catch him in the cafeteria. Okay. Take him out. Thank you. If a student brings a gun to school or talks seriously about killing someone, it should be reported immediately. Remember, school shootings have been prevented because a student reported a threat. If a student is being picked on, bullied, or harassed, you should report that too. No one should stand by and let another person be abused. A threat assessment team will investigate and stop the situation before it gets worse. Look. I'm worried that he really means it, but I don't want to be a snitch. A snitch is somebody who tells on you to get something for himself. It's not snitching if you're trying to keep somebody from getting hurt. Sometimes students don't want to report a threat because they think it's snitching, but there's a big difference between snitching and seeking help. Snitching is something you do for your own benefit, like if you were trying to get out of trouble. So if you report a threat, you're not snitching. You're trying to prevent somebody from being hurt. There are students who have prevented a shooting because they reported a threat, and they're not snitches. How will you feel if he actually does it? What if he kills someone and you could have done something to stop it? There have been many situations where a shooting was prevented. But in schools where shootings did occur, there were often students who decided not to say anything. 
They kept quiet and let it happen. Don't let that happen in your school. I guess you're right. I don't want anybody getting killed if I could prevent it. Who do I talk to about this? If you hear a threat and believe it could be serious, do the right thing. Talk to someone you trust, like a teacher, counselor, coach, principal, police officer, or your parents. Okay, um, I don't know how to say this, but I'm kind of worried about Connor. Oh, well, if you're worried about him, I, I want to know. Well, see, he said he had a gun and he was going to shoot Evan in the cafeteria. Oh, wow. Okay, you did the right thing by letting me know. I want to make sure I understand the situation. Tell me more about this. Well, we don't need to play it a second time. Take him out. If a student yeah, brings a gun to school, or yeah. Gosh, you just all want to see it again, don't you? <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to get this mouse to actually respond. All right, let's see where our PowerPoint is. No. It's right behind the uh, mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah, just, um, I can't it down. That's Catherine's. Mine is closed out. Is it closed completely? Yeah, looks like it is. I can't see it now. <laughs> is that you? That's it. Let me get that. Look at all these slides we've already watched. We're almost done here. Then we'll have a quiz. All right, so uh, let me just say we've uh, shown this video to over 2,000 students across uh, Virginia schools, and uh, we asked some pre and post questions, and we can, we can show that uh, pre-test they got 54% of the questions, and, and at post-test they got 82% of the questions. So we're, we're doing this uh, for parents, we're doing this for teachers, uh, and for threat assessment uh, team members. I, had the help of a great team of uh, doctoral students and colleagues uh, doing this project. And I uh, want to let you know that if you're interested in any more information about it or copies of any of the studies or anything else that we've done, uh, you can go to the uh, website for the Virginia Youth Violence Project in the Curry School of Education. And I think it's time for Catherine to, uh, to come up. With this microphone? Uh, sure. Okay. Great. Well, thank you all for hanging out with us this afternoon. So now we're going to switch gears just a little bit and think about the topic of bullying. I'm kind of interested of you in the room. How many of you have kids or work with kids or interact with school age kids or preschool age kids on a regular basis? All right. So that's most hands in the room. And just out of curiosity, not to out yourself totally, but how many of you had a personal experience with bullying? Either you were involved as a bully or you had a, an experience that you witnessed, a good friend, or even had a kid or something like that that you work with that, that had a bullying experience that was kind of salient. 
All right, again, it's, it's almost everybody in the room has been touched in some way. I remember talking to my dad, who's like 86 years old, about bullying, and he's like, that's so weird that you studied it. I remember when I was six and I was bullied, and he like rattled off all these details of this experience, and I was like, how do you remember that? And he's like, I don't know why I remember that, but I just remember this. And it seems like the topic of bullying is just one that resonates with a lot of people for a variety of reasons, either because we've had kids in our lives, we've had a personal experience, and sometimes people like my dad have this very salient experience that they can't remember what they did yesterday, but they remember what they were wearing and who bullied them and what time of year it was and what it was about. So there's something about those kind of experiences that quite often stick with us. And those of us that are interested in this as a research area are really interested in that phenomenon. Like, why is it so salient to people? Are there impacts that happen? What is it about a society or a culture? And frankly, there's a lot going on right now in the media and with even the public situation with our leadership that has drawn a lot more attention to this topic of bullying. And I want to also make sure that we're aware that there's a science and a research body behind it. It's not just something we're all kind of jumping on the bandwagon. But as you saw, Dr. Cornell presented research showing that while school violence and those really acute incidents that occur are often the tip of the iceberg and the ones that kind of make their way into the headlines, there's a fair amount of bullying that goes on that kind of creates that base of the pyramid that quite often can bubble up and lead to those more serious events. So that's one area that really got this topic on my brain is when I was just in graduate school, kind of finishing my master's and getting ready to go into my PhD program was the year that Columbine high school shootings occurred. And that was really where I started thinking a lot more about what do we know about bullying and how it's related to anything like school shooting and what are we doing more broadly to try to prevent these problems before they occur. So Dewey gave you a really great example of prevention and I view myself as a prevention scientist. We always put the word science behind something that makes it sound more sophisticated. I even edit a journal called Prevention Science. So I think a lot about how do we try to prevent things before they escalate or get worse. And that's one thing about bullying, is we want to try to prevent these problems that kids are having before they go on to a kid getting into fights chronically or using aggression to get their way every single time or just end up being a jerk in the workplace or going on to be abusive towards children as a parent. So it can really lead to other problems across the life course. And so as a developmental psychologist, I'm really interested in how can we see these early precursors, try to stop it before it escalates, and try to stop its impacts before it hurts other people. So in terms of some, what I'm going to talk a little bit, my advanced organizer, is uh, trying to talk a little bit about what is bullying, what does it look like, how do we know it when we see it, why is it a problem in school environments and around school climate, and what are some things that we can do either as parents or adults interacting with kids, but most of the time, Dewey and I spend our, our work focused on talking to school personnel. So a lot of my examples kind of go back to people that are working in schools, but are certainly relevant for parents or other adults that are interacting with kids. In fact, we need to be talking to more people outside of schools about the issue of bullying, so that way they become more aware of how they can actually address this, even as just a neighbor or a community member or somebody in your church or synagogue that sees other kids that are getting bullied. What can you do? So a lot of people walk around with this idea of what they think bullying is. And for a long time, we were operating off of just kind of definitions or people's schema, their own idea about it. But then all of a sudden, the federal government said, well, you know, maybe we should try to get together and come up with some consensus around what this term bullying means. 
And so I worked with a, a group through multiple federal agencies, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They're actually interested in bullying because it's a form of injury that kids can inflict harm on each other. And the US Department of Education to put together this definition. And while this is kind of wordy here, it really gets into three core features. The first is around intentionality. So it's an aggressive behavior. It's not something that just happens by accident, like somebody just gets left off the invite list to a birthday party. If that accident is intentional, which quite often it is, then it might very well be an incident of bullying. So it's an intentional aggressive behavior. It typically is repeated over time. It can't just be a one isolated event, but it has that potential to happen again. Like somebody sends a really nasty email, what we call cyberbullying. That actually could just be one email that happens, but it fans out to so many people or it gets posted on a website. That's repeated exposure in and of itself. But sometimes you can see this dynamics that's getting set up and you can see that it's probably going to be repeated. So I tell people, never wait until it happens again you know, before you, inter you intervene. You really want to start to be sensitive to those and catch them early in that cycle. And the third is kind of a differentiator between kids that are just getting to an argument or a fight or a disagreement where there's some power differential. When you talk to my dad, he thinks about the kid bullying him on the playground, the bigger kid who is you know, more popular than he is. He doesn't think as much about other kinds of power, like social dynamics within a network, like popularity, or even kids that have disabilities that by nature of their disability might have lower power or lower status within a group. It may actually be even turned on its head when you think about a kid that knows how to use technology really well. I'm not particularly IT savvy, so I can't set up an Instagram to go out to a whole bunch of people. But using that technology actually puts some kids in a power position where they normally would be kind of the geeky teenage kid that's just behind the computer. So our notion of what power and that dynamic is is a little bit different in a bullying context than it might be in a regular situation. And while I was just using words like bully or victim, and in fact, the field's trying to move away from labeling individual kids in this dynamic, we could also think about this as much more complex. This is what we call a bullying circle that was created by one of the leaders in the field, a guy named Dan Oveas. And so he's actually developed one of the most widely used programs around bullying prevention called the Oveas Bullying Prevention Program. He named it after himself. And so his work actually highlights this complex dynamic where you've got the target or the victim there in the middle, and then A is labeled the kid who bullies them. But think about all these other people that are standing around watching it. They could play a potential role as a follower, kind of jumping on board if that happens. Or as you swing over to the F and the G where you see kids that might actually defend the kid. And so this is what we're trying to do a lot of times in our interventions. While adults can intervene, we cannot be the only ones that are involved in this. And quite often we're trying to swing the circle around so that way we have more kids on the right-hand side, the ones that are on the defender and the supporter side. And that's a complex process. That's why we think a lot about school climate and norms and how we can shift those expectations and promote things like empathy so that way kids will try to intervene on the behalf of each other. So while I talk a little bit about what happens for kids that bully or what happens for kids that are bullied, keep in mind there are all these other players that are involved. And while this one instant might just involve A and H, the next day it very well could be E that's the target or even C that's actually the one that's bullying somebody else. So it is very complex and that's why it's hard for us to intervene by just using one strategy or one solution or having one campaign within a school or something. So who's involved? What do we know about how prevalent the concern is? 
estimates are anywhere between 30 and 40 percent. When we first started doing research in this area, we found that, wow, there are a lot more kids that are involved in this than we originally had thought. And they could be involved as many of those different roles. But when we think even just directly involved, about 23% is a victim, about 8% is a perpetrator or a bully, and about 9% is a bully victim. And that group is actually the most interesting to me. These are the kids that bully and also get targeted for their own behavior. And in fact, they're the ones that we see have the most social, emotional, and academic problems as a result of their bullying. Quite often people think it's, oh, it's just the victim. But it's the kids that are kind of those aggressive victims, the ones that go and lash out against others and bully others. They're actually the ones that often are targeted the most because they're reactive. If I sit here and bully Dewey and he doesn't do anything, that's not very fun for me. So I'm going to try to find somebody else. I want to be reinforced for my behavior because I kind of like that power dynamic. And so if he got really reactive, I'd be like, wow, that was kind of cool. Look at what I did. I pressed his buttons. I'm going to do that again. And so that's one reason why kids aren't just randomly bullied. Quite often they're targeted because of characteristics of their background or their own behavior. And in fact, we know a little bit about some of the gender differences. Boys and girls are both involved in bullying. Boys tend to be more sensitive to the physical forms of bullying, and girls tend to be a little bit more for, uh, informed and hurt by some of those more social forms, like relational forms of aggression. And boys generally tend to be uh, a little more involved as perpetrators, particularly in the physical types. But let's kind of dig into some of these other groups. I had something about ethnicity there, and, and, uh, but we could dig into other subgroups or areas of stigma. We know that LGBT youth have very high rates of victimization, as do youth with disabilities. Our team did some really interesting work around kids with autism. And we found that kids that were in secluded set, uh, settings, that they were often special schools, they were less likely to be bullied because they were around other kids that were not typically developing. But the kids that were in inclusion programs, they had much higher rates of victimization. And they also were more likely to bully their peers. So because they were exposed to other kids and didn't really know how to actually react. So um, I do a little bit of work in the area of autism, and that was one area to kind of look at that intersection of bullying and autism. Uh, we've also been doing some more work about health issues, including obesity, finding that kids that are struggling with issues of obesity are more likely to be victimized, even asthma. Uh, that was a recent finding that we had, uh, that we reported at a conference last week. So in some areas, it's hard for us to be able to tease out, you know, what's the cause and consequence, but certainly bullying doesn't cause disabilities and bullying doesn't cause LGBT status. So we know that those are more risk factors. There are some questions about things like obesity. Might it be that kids that are obese or prone to eating problems might be more likely to be targeted and that they also overeat to, as a way of adjusting for coping, maladaptive coping. So some of these are kind of complex when you start teasing apart the cause versus the consequence there. But other factors like socioeconomic status, immigration, and religious minority, and what we call intersectionality, where you might have multiple stigmatized uh, experiences. Um, the research is a little less conclusive. However, I will highlight that very recently we've seen an upsurge in great concerns about immigration status, and I'll return to this in a few minutes, and that relates to some of the broader political climate that we're seeing right now, but is an area that we need a lot more research on. So I alluded to different types of bullying. So there are forms that are more direct, like hitting, name calling, and then indirect forms that might be leading, leaving somebody out or spreading rumors about them, cyberbullying. 
Um, we've also done a little bit of research, like where does this stuff start? Does it start in preschool? You know, what about just rough and tumble play? And how is that different than kids that are just don't have good social skills? But what we don't want to do is overlook those behaviors, because quite often if kids don't learn to self-correct and don't get on the right track with that, then they can continue to use those types of behaviors and get reinforced for them. So we do provide training to teachers, even as young as preschool. We want to make sure we're not labeling kids too early on. And in fact, kids can see that others might be stigmatized or left out, and others can reinforce that. So we need to make sure that we're very sensitive to the developmental issues as well. A little bit about cyberbullying. I often get a lot of questions about this, in particular because of so many technologies that are being developed in the availability of technology for youth. In fact, I'm just finishing up a book chapter right now about the use of technology and bullying prevention. So not only is it used a lot in actual how kids bully each other, but it can be helpful as a tool for getting assistance or in part of national campaigns. There was recently an emoji that was created about the witness through the ad council and was rolled out through Facebook and all these other ways, so that way we could try to leverage technology as a way to intervene. So that's another area for us to think about additional research. But there are a couple of unique features. I like this because it's like Blackberries. <laughs> I actually still have a Blackberry because I like the keys, so I really like this little picture. But uh, not too many kids are using Blackberries these days. But this is just an example of how you know the technology changes so frequently. You have to update all your language and images. But things that are a little bit different about cyberbullying from other forms of traditional bullying is that it can happen 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even when you're not really expecting it. You know, there's some research showing that kids have anticipatory anxiety about going into situations like the cafeteria where they expect to be bullied or where they might see other kids. But when it's through the phone, anytime I look at the phone, anytime I pull open my email or I get on Facebook, it could be there. So that level of anxiety is kind of all-inclusive. It can also be done anonymously, and so that's very hurtful. And the effects can actually be rather long-lasting. Even though it's just an email that's sent out, who knows who got that and how long it's going to be posted or if it's really that photo's really taken down. And for those reasons, sometimes cyberbullying can actually be perceived by youth as more hurtful than other forms of bullying. Our team's been trying to do some research about rates of bullying over time. And we just recently published a 10-year study where we looked at rates of bullying in about 100 schools in Maryland. I was in Maryland before I came here. And so we looked between 2005 to 2014 and actually saw that the field was making some progress in this area. So these are rates of kids that were reporting witnessing bullying, being a victim of bullying, and perpetrating bullying. And so we found statistically significant declines. Certainly, I would love for that number to go down to 0% from uh, its relatively high rate. We still have a lot of work to do. Uh, however, one thing I do want to point out is this was a 10-year study, and it was about a quarter of a million students that participated over the course of that time. So it's fairly large for its size. And it was elementary, middle, and high, and we controlled for a lot of different demographic characteristics. But what's interesting is we stopped this particular study in 2014. And what's happened since 2014? We've had this big election and a lot of attention to issues. And so I've gotten so many calls from the press, in fact, that are asking me questions about what's going on with Trump. You know, kids are actually quoting Trump and quoting the election and started off with the campaign. Uh, literally, I have an interview this afternoon with, with NPR talking about this 
recent study that just came out about BuzzFeed, about kids that are citing Trump as a reason why that they're bullying other kids and are actually pulling quotes. And for researchers, like Dewey and I, we kind of get anxious when we start just to hear these things kind of pop up in non-scientific studies. And so it would be really important for those of us that are continuing to collect data. In fact, that big Maryland study, we still collected data in 2015, 16, and 17. And so we're going to take a look at the data this summer to see if those positive trends that we experienced, are we actually seeing a change in them? And so it's really hard for sometimes when we hear things in the media that are happening kind of anecdotally, are they really carrying out in our big, large-scale, more epidemiologically defined studies? So that's a question yet to be answered. But let's return to thinking a little bit more about for the kids that are being bullied and in fact if the rates are going back up, we're very concerned about that. And although the rates do seem to be declining, not just in our study, but some of the other national data, they certainly aren't going to zero percent. A drop of two or three or four or five percentage points is promising because it shows some of the effects and some of the activities that we've engaged in uh, politically and in policy and in practice might be having an impact there are still a lot of kids that are being bullied and that are experiencing problems like self-esteem issues, depression, absenteeism, even illness. There's an interesting series of studies showing, particularly among younger kids, that they don't have a way to express verbally some of the concerns they're having, so they get a lot of stomach aches and headaches, don't want to go to school, end up in the nurse's office because they're complaining and what they perceive as psychosomatic kind of concerns but they can come out. So as parents of younger kids, you need to really attend to some of those issues. But then there are also ways that the bullying can get under your skin. In fact, understanding what are some physiological changes that might be occurring as a result of bullying. Uh, Dewey and I have a colleague who's up in Canada named Tracy Valancourt, who does a lot of work in this area, trying to understand some of the genetic factors that might make kids more likely to engage in bullying or even more sensitive to bullying after it happens. But there's a lot between your brain and your body and how your body's responding to these different experiences that might make you more likely to develop a mental health or behavioral health problem. So HPA stands for, it's really this complex uh, axis between your hypothalamus and then understanding how your pituitary gland and your adrenal glands are all responding to a certain kind of stressor. And bullying can very well be a stressor. So there's actually data to show that kids that are stressed out as a result of bullying, they're more likely to develop these kinds of problems. And their genetic vulnerabilities that might make one more likely to engage in bullying. There are other aspects about your brain and its brain development. Very sadly, there's an image down here of a young child, uh, two different children in fact, a typically developing child on the left and one on the right who experienced extreme neglect. You don't need to have a PhD in neuropsychology or neurology to be able to tell that there's something that's different about those kinds of brains. And so quite often when kids are experiencing bullying, they're also experiencing other kind of adverse events, maybe exposure to violence at home, or other kinds of things that increase that stress on the body, what we call as allostatic load. You know sometimes when you get run down, you don't bounce back exactly like the way you were before. That experience of stress can actually cause physiological damage to your heart if it occurs for a long period of time. So I don't want to be overdramatic, but I want to contextualize our understanding of bullying in a broader conversation around stress and other kind of adverse experiences. We generally think about child maltreatment as being really a very serious concern. And in some ways, bullying isn't really all that different. It's just who's actually perpetrating it. 
So ways for us to think about this. And in fact, there was an interesting study that came out in a medical journal. I wasn't involved with it, but had an opportunity to comment on it. Looking at inflammation, like the way that kids respond to different kinds of stressors in terms of their heart rate and other kinds of immune functioning. So there are ways that bullying as a stressor can have a negative impact on your phys physical health as well as your psychological. So when we think about concerns, uh, kids who are involved in bullying are more likely not only to develop some of those mental health concerns, but also behavioral health concerns. Get involved with alcohol, other kinds of externalizing problems, even go on to criminality. So when we think, uh, I mentioned a little bit about this bully victim subgroup are most likely to experience some of the mental health concerns. That's one area that we're very attentive to in thinking about interventions and trying to do more screening. Um, there's also some interesting work about popularity. So kids that are uh, tend to bully, they tend to think that their behavior is acceptable by others and that that kid really deserved it. So they have different ways that they kind of perceive the world or different cognitions of justice and what's appropriate. And so those are often targets for our intervention, thinking about how do we actually change that. And the effects of bullying quite often are, are rather persistent when we look at how kids feel engaged with their school environment. So why do we care about this? We care about this because we care about kids and their futures. We care about healthy school environments. In fact, schools are responsible for creating conditions that promote learning. So if there are problems in the school, like bullying or safety concerns, then the school is responsible to actually intervene. So there's an accountability on this. And in fact, now all 50 states have some law specifically related to bullying. Most of them come in the form of policies, like you're not going to arrest a kid. But more about schools are charged with putting in place different kinds of training or prevention programming. And Dr. Cornell has been involved in review of some of those and made uh, some uh, comments about how extensively they're implemented. In fact, there's a lot of variation in the quality of the implementation of those policies. So what do we recommend to schools? Well, we recommend that they do things like increase their supervision in different areas of the school. They'd be on the spot, kind of ready to intervene, and really watching out in those hot spots. They hold meetings with kids that are involved in bullying to try to create a counterculture that's more supportive of the bystanders, upstanders, kids that are going to intervene in a positive way. And then thinking about different intervention plans for kids that are directly involved. So quite often people say, well, what if I'm walking down the street, or what if I see a kid bullying, what do I do there? Well, what's the way that I should really react? So the first thing you want to do is label the bullying and stop it. You want to support and acknowledge the student that's being bullied and tell them that it wasn't their fault, they don't deserve to be treated that way. Name the act as bullying, so that way everybody's clear that this is a situation of bullying. You want to engage the bystanders if there are other kids that are upset or involved in it. But you also want to separate out the kid that's being targeted from the kid that's perpetrating and be able to handle their needs separately. And in fact, as we've shown in the literature, kids that bully other kids are also struggling quite often with what's the right thing to do. And so we don't want to just kick them out of school and suspend them. We actually want to do things to help change their behavior. So we do find, sadly, that a lot of adults don't intervene in schools around this issue. Uh, in fact, although 87% of staff think that they have effective strategies for intervening, and 97% said that they would intervene if they saw a situation of bullying, when we ask kids, kids really have a very different picture about what's happening around this issue. 
So in fact, when we kind of surveyed 15,000 students and 1,500 staff all from the same school, we find these really different opinions about what the kids think is happening with adult intervention and what adults are really. So there's a very a big disconnect. And in fact, uh, this is a, a, a drawing I got from a colleague of ours named Sue Swearer. It's an activity called Drawing a Bully. And you see on the left-hand side, this is bully when other kids, when other adults aren't around. And so you see with the, the halo, the kind of angel, and then on the right hand is when the adults aren't around with the, the horns here. So there's a very different picture that kids can play in these situations. And this is what really uh, leads to a lot of challenges. And then uh, I talked a little bit about some of the ways that adults can try to be uh, attuned to this and keeping their own emotions in check and trying to be respectful to help out kids without labeling and reinforcing other things about what to actually say, how you want to talk to the child, and how you want to listen to their concerns. Sadly, we hear from some kids, they feel like they're being blamed as a victim, and sometimes kids that may be LGBT or struggling with weight issues or acting a little bit differently, sometimes adults will say, well, if you didn't wear that, or if you didn't act like that, then people wouldn't pick on you, and if you didn't use that bathroom, or if you didn't do this, if you didn't talk like a girl, we do this. So we need to be very careful that we as adults, when we're trying to intervene, aren't using mixed messages for our kids, that we're really supportive of them, even if they have a different background or experience that, that clashes with some of our personal values. So uh, I want to wrap up uh, just by talking briefly about some of the programming. A lot of the work that we do focuses on testing social-emotional learning curricula, um, developing supportive relationships in a positive school climate, thinking about what we can do in the school environment as well as what we can do for parents and to support parents and getting parents to talk to the school when they have these concerns, especially when issues of cyberbullying come up, because a lot of that happens outside of the school environment that creates a disruption in the school that needs to be addressed. And then thinking about some of those universal prevention strategies like Dewey mentioned, stopping the problems before they actually happen. Uh, teacher training and school-wide activities, a lot of the work that Dewey and I have done is focused on giving data back to schools so that we, schools can learn about where this is happening in their school environment and try to intervene more effectively. And uh, I'm going to mention just quickly uh, as we wrap up here, one kind of innovative approach that we're using is a, a teaching simulator called Teach Live. And so this is a simulated learning environment that adults can use to practice new skills. And so it's used a lot in medical training, you know, about how doctors can intervene and, and practice um, out different techniques. But it could also be used in education. So we're using an online software platform called Teach Live. And it's got this simulated classroom of five kids. And there's actually an interactor kind of behind the scene that's responding to the instructor. And so we're using this to help teachers learn to detect bullying. Because remember those discrepancies that are occurring? A lot of adults say, yeah, I don't know about I would intervene, but I just don't see it, especially when I'm teaching. And so we actually set up these simulated classroom environments to give teachers opportunities to detect bullying and learn how to intervene more effectively. So this is a grant that we started over the last year or so and it's proving to be rather instructive for us as we use as a tool to help teachers increase their awareness about bullying so that way they're better at detecting it and learning better about how to respond. 
So I'd be happy to answer any questions. I know we have a few minutes left here um, for some quick Q&A about issues related to school climate and safety and, and um, bullying. So I will go ahead and turn it over to you. Yeah, so if you'll wait for the mic, it'll uh, allow us to capture your question. Hi, uh, my question is actually for uh, Dr. Cornell. Um, the statistics that you gave, we talked about Virginia Tech, but were your research, is your research K to post-grad or is it just K-12, all of the studies that you did about shootings? The studies I presented are K-12 K studies, but we did develop a version of our threat assessment model for use at, at the college level and frame schools and colleges in, in that as well. Just so your question, your answer is captured because we're recording. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Hi. Um, my name is Samantha. I'm a reporter with Seville Weekly, so I'll probably write something short about what you guys are talking about today. And you were talking about how in county schools, I believe, they um, spent a lot of money to replace the locks on the doors. Yes. What other types of things like that are happening in city and county schools? Uh, I think if you look over the recent budgets, they've also got funding allocations for uh, rebuilding the entrances of some schools. I can't tell you the details, but if you look at that, you'll see those are big ticket items. Other questions? Um, have you seen any positive um, ramifications from using the social justice programs or like restorative justice in schools for lowering threat level? That's a big issue, a big area of, of interest uh, nationwide. Uh, we have a lot of enthusiasm for restorative justice programs. Our threat assessment model is very compatible with a restorative justice approach. A lot of the, it, it turns out a lot of the questions that we ask and a lot of the goals that we have when we're trying to resolve a threat situation are almost map right on to restorative discipline. Uh, we need more research on restorative discipline. There's a couple of studies underway now to, uh, uh, to demonstrate its benefits. So I, I kind of see that as a, as a future development. Other questions? The simulator that Catherine mentioned earlier, I think that's fascinating. And I don't know if any of the schools in, in the Charlottesville um, community if they're using it. Yeah, so uh, it, Dewey and I are here in the Curry School of Education, and we have a number of projects that are going on using simulators. And uh, we had a pilot project where we were using it with our teachers in preparation, so that way that's a more traditional use. So where we have undergraduates and graduate students that are doing their training here and going into real school environments. And so we did a pilot last spring where the teachers in our behavior management class came into the simulator and practiced different kinds of strategies. And the, the goal there is that you can kind of try things out in a safer environment mm -hmm. and get coaching from your instructor before you go into a real classroom setting. And so all of those pre-service teachers, students here at UVA, are going into schools in the surrounding area and trying them out. Um, we got some feedback from the students about ways that we could kind of optimize that program, and there was some local coverage of that. 
And uh, that's also been a big area for our school is thinking about the, the next generation of preparing teachers. What are ways that we could use new technologies such as simulators to try to accelerate that learning and practice cycle. And uh, most of the time when people go into the accelerator, it's literally just a screen like this. And so there's a projected image and then there's kind of an eyeball that's looking at you to see how you respond and that it's in real time. And um, so there's some aspects of the technology that are really great. There are others that aren't quite as flexible, and so we're trying to work out some of the kinks there. But usually just practicing for 10 or 12 minutes in the simulator is estimated to be like more like hours in a real-life situation. Because what you can do in the simulator is you can kind of load the deck. You can say, all right, there are going to be five instances of bullying in this 15 minutes. But in the real world, there's not going to be that many of them. And so you can really get people to practice, whereas a teacher might have a situation where they're teaching all day long and only see one instance of bullying, or maybe there were only two that happened during that day, but they caught one of them. But in a simulator, you can you know, really load the deck, so to speak, to provide more opportunity for them to practice that and also help them provide an opportunity to get feedback. So we always have a coach that's there with them, helping them learn to what, what they did well and what they might want to improve on. And how many times would you want to say, like, oh, I wish I could do that over again? <laughs> and in the real world, you can't do that. Or maybe I said the wrong thing, or I said something that came out wrong. You know, I was talking about the kind of blaming the victim language that some people don't realize that they're using. And so that's another way we could, the coach could say, you know, the words you use may not have been really empowering for the kid that was being the target there. What else could you say? Let's try that again. And that way they could do it again and practice, just like with anything. The more practice you get, the better you are able to do it. So it's not a perfect technology, uh, but it's one that we're really interested in and engaged in trying to pilot. Yeah, it sounds really great. I know not... A lot of people were in this seminar, but um, it, it was recorded, and so we'll be sharing it widely, um, just so you know about that. And feel free, it should be up and running by Wednesday or so of next week, so you can check our website and we'll start pushing it out. So. Thank you for being here. Um, I understand there's wine and cheese next door if wants to, <laughs> to go to that seminar. But thank you for being here. Welcome back to Grounds. I'm Althea Brooks, and I was out trying to usher people in when you guys got started, so we didn't get your, your intro done. But thank you. Great talk. Um, thank really, you. Really informative. Well, I'm sure Dewey and I will be happy to grab a glass of wine and chat for a little bit. Yeah. So. And so alumni.